I bid you welcome. I want to play a game. Stay on the road. Keep clear to the moors. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. Let them see what kind of a person I am. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Hey folks, my name is Will. My name is Yaz. And welcome to the Monster Monday podcast. This is the weekly podcast where we talk about a horror film every single week. And Yaz, why do we talk about horror films? Because the monsters in film aren't as scary as the monsters in real life. And this has been a little bit of a traumatising week, hasn't it? Not because of anything in the news in particular, but because me and Yaz are recording this off the back of marathoning It's a Sin, aren't we? Which is oh, a, yeah. But... Wow, fantastic programme, but mm-hmm. honestly, like so harrowing and like it's an important story to be told it wasn't even that long ago yeah like the the last episode takes place a year before me and you were born and yeah me and yaz are proper youngsters as well so it really wasn't that long ago was it (laughs) but the thing is that yaz you should have seen this coming though because you saw all the signs in manchester didn't you you saw that the story was on its way to being told oh i did i did i was on the bus on the way home and I shit you not, I saw Neil Patrick Harris mm-hmm. in the street on on my way home. They were at the filming location because I work in the heart of Manchester City Centre. Yeah. So to get home, I have to go like through the city centre and mm. on the on a little bit onto the outskirts. And so they were filming round there. Mm. And I texted you and I said, I think I've just passed Neil Patrick Harris, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure it's him. <laughs> but it looks like there's a big filming thing happening. Yeah. And uh, w- when we went out, you know, before the world ended, this is like back in late 2019, it was myself, you, your mum and your stepdad. Yeah. Uh, the Northern Quarter, where I think they were doing some filming as well. They had the old-fashioned cars on the streets. So, yeah, we saw all this coming, and yet we were still, bl- bl- like, blubbering in tears by the end of the series, even though we had Well, bl- we, we didn't warning. know what it was about, no, did we? We no. just saw the filming happening and, mm. and stuff. And we recognised one of the pubs, Marble Arch, we've we, been in there. We did, yes. Um, And, obviously, we recognised the Northern Quarter. I mean, it was dressed up very well to look like London yeah, in the 80s, I, I, but I'm sorry, you just recognise an Northern Quarter. Yeah, but that, that transitions us uh, quite nicely into uh, another big British production. <laughs> uh, <laughs> smooth. Because uh, this is the 2012 adaptation of The Woman in Black. Now, The Woman in Black was a book written by Susan Hill. I associate The Woman in Black with, like, gothic 18th, 19th century literature, but it was actually written in the 1980s. The author, uh, Susan Hill, was born in the 40s. She's still alive now. She actually helped to write uh, the film sequel, Woman in Black 2, Angel of Death. So she's still still quite prominent. The reason we're talking about this film today is because... You're going through a Goodreads, is it? Yeah, the Goodreads reading challenge. So you download the app and you set yourself a number of books um, to read by the end of the year and you update your progress with what you've read and etc, etc. Um, because I used to be a, a big bookworm when mm, I was really you young. You could blitz through them. Yeah, and I would read books every weekend and I'd finish a book every weekend and when I've got older life kind of got in the way and I've not managed to do that I used to be one of these people that would have five books I shit you not five books on the go at the same time and I would flip between them all this is how much I used to Mm. read then you discovered Netflix 
yeah then no then I got older and life kind of got in the way and then you just sort of get complacent so I've I've decided to take the challenge to try and get back into reading I still buy tons of books and people still buy me tons of books guilty I just um I just don't get through them as quickly as I should Mm. so I've decided to take the challenge and one of the books on the list was The Woman in Black and thankfully it's only a short story so I've managed to read it within a couple of days Mm -hmm. but yeah because I first heard about uh, the story because when I was at uni I had a friend called Jamie a big uh, theatre nerd a big theatre geek big fan of theatre and he went to see a stage adaptation of the woman in black and he would just rave about it because it's this horror stage production but it's like a really small audience like 30 or 40 people uh, in the round and it's really claustrophobic Uh, and trivia that stage production is the second longest running play in West End history after The Mousetrap which has actually stopped its theatre production because of Covid uh, so that was a theatre production that was just going to go on and on and on and on. And then isolation and social distancing has kind of put an end to that theatre production, which is depressing. So yeah, you, you recently read this book and you, ha- you had thoughts. And that's why we decided to bump this film up into our viewing schedule and make it the next episode. Yeah, because I was trying to talk to you about it and you couldn't remember a thing that I was on about. And I was mm. like, but I really need someone to talk to yeah, about this. Because I saw this film around the time it came. I think I caught it in theatres and everything, but I just didn't remember a thing about it. Well, funny story. Oh. I've always remembered this film. I've really, really enjoyed it. And mm. there's one thing in horror films that really scare me. We know what it is. Nuns and ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just terrify me. Mm. And um, I really wanted to see this film. I saw it was a hammer horror making a comeback. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I've got to see this film. However, nobody wanted to see it with me. <laughs> yeah. um, you were away, I think, yeah, at yeah. university. I said to my mum, look, please come see it with me. I really want to go see it. I don't want to go on my own. Mm-hmm. It's only a 12. It can't be that scary. Please come see it with me. Oh my god, famous last words. Yeah. <laughs> and it scared the shit out of us both. Um, and so I've remembered it ever since. Mm. And I think I've revisited it a couple of times since then. I just think it's an amazing story. Mm. But yeah, because this film got quite a bit of controversy at the time because it was rated 12A, which is a PG-13 equivalent uh, for those of us, uh, for those of you listening in America. And I'll, we'll talk more about it later because I, uh, because in order to talk about why it got that rating, we need to go into spoilers of the film and such. So we'll talk about that uh, towards the end of the episode. But yeah, unless there's anything else uh, you wanted to preface this uh, this episode with, with regards to the book or anything, we can start talking about the film. Um, I'll talk about the book at the end because it, obviously it'll be spoiler filled. Mm-hmm. So let's well, talk about the film. So yeah, so you've got lots to stick around for, folks. But listen all the way to the end. Yes, yeah, so our movie opens with a trio of young girls having a tea party with a bunch of creepy dolls. The girls, in unison, they all look at an unseen figure in the corner of the room. They're looking off camera. And then seemingly, without provocation, they all walk towards the large bedroom window. They open it, and they all just step out. We transition to the opening credits through the horrified screams of the mother. Uh, which is creepy. What opening. an opening. Yeah, that, it, I think it's really cool. I, I also love the 
production design, or at least the set or location they're in, because you've got this window with three panes, like panes of glass in it. All the girls open it, all three of them in unison, and just step out. I just love this film so much. Mm. It's just a beautiful looking film. Yeah. This is a hammer. This is hammer horror at its best, yeah. in my opinion. Well, that like this is incredible. Yeah, well, that's that's perfect because that was a piece during the opening credits of this film. It says that this is a hammer horror film, and this is uh, a massive legacy of British horror films. Now, obviously, people who were involved in Hammer during its heyday in the fifties and sixties, when they were making these uh, horror films in colour. Uh, based off public domain characters like Frankenstein and the Mummy and Dracula with Christopher. Don't forget the Gorgon. The Gorgon, of course. Uh, the Quater Mass adaptation as well. Uh, these films were starring like Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, who are iconic horror icons. Absolutely, but while people, while the people who are involved during the heyday obviously aren't involved now, it still is that legacy, that Hammer Horror seal of approval. And production-wise, behind the cameras, it's it's there. This comes to us from director James Watkins, who made his directorial debut a few years prior with Eden Lake, which is something you've seen that oh, I haven't. what a film. Now that, it's, di- it's a completely different style. It's mm. beautifully shot. Um, once again, it's set in England, but what a brutal fucking film. Mm, well, Honestly, if you've not seen it, it is... It is brutal. Yeah, like because because you just said, "Oh, I want to watch this film," and I just wasn't able to at the time for whatever reason. You came out, you came out a girl, and like then you're now a woman now. <laughs> Eden Lake has aged you, I think, uh, in in a good way. Oh, uh, <laughs> that joke really backfired. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll add Eden Lake to the wheel uh, later on down the line, and so maybe do an episode about it. But the, yeah, so he's got your approval for working on Eden Eden Lake, and then he goes and works on The Woman in Black. He also directed that uh, Shut Up and Dance Black Mirror episode where that young guy is um, being instructed to do several things and uh, and he's basically... He's being blackmailed over the phone by this guy and he has to do these criminal and incriminating acts in order to to be let go. But yeah, this film is just dripping in like that... Uh, like Everything's got mist over it. There's a bit of grain on the footage, even though it might have been shot digitally. It's just that the the commitment to the bit. Aesthetically, it's fucking beautiful. Yeah. And um, the calibre of actors in it is oh, yeah. top-notch, it's, too. It's a lot of names who you might not have heard of, but you'll have seen them in loads of things. It's, it's a staple of... like It's a big staple of like British character actors. Um, and another thing that could have made this the ultimate retro horror experience, they originally planned to shoot this thing in 3D. Uh, oh, but it, no. it, it didn't end up happening. But can you imagine the woman in black just coming through the screen to grab you? That would have just been... It's bad enough 2D. I don't want her <laughs> in my face. <laughs> So, it's over 20 years later, and we're introduced to widower Arthur Kibbs, played by Daniel Radcliffe, played by Mr. Harry Potter, um, who is an... Yeah, but I think he does a good job of, like, I don't think he gets enough credit as an actor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, yes, he was in this big thing when he was a kid, but he's moved away from that. He can do other things. Like, 
and he stands alone in this as a really good actor. Yeah, he because he'd spent ten years as like while not like a what you'd call a, a superstar actor, he was still like the face of the most prominent franchise of like the beginning of the twenty first century, and I think he's been able to use that to do really weird or offbeat projects like Swiss Army Man, where he plays the farting corpse. He did a, a stage adaptation of Equus. Uh, where he falls in love with a horse. And, of course, he did this. This was his first project after Harry Potter. And that that kind of got a lot of eyeballs on just what Daniel Radcliffe, this child star, would do next. And he does a controversial horror film. So his character, Arthur Kibbs, is an up-and-coming London lawyer. And he packs his belongings. He says goodbye to his adorable four-year-old son, Joseph, played by Amisha Handley. Oh, what a cute kid. And also, Daniel Radcliffe's real-life godson. So that, yeah, so it's basically... Oh, so that's a nice little... Yeah, a kid who is comfortable with being on camera yeah. with, yeah. Uh, he's also got a nanny, played by Jessica Rain, uh, the same year she uh, she was cast in Call the Midwife. So I think she found her lane very early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Joseph is absolutely scathing of his dad as well, like really passive-aggressive drawings of him in a, a little calendar that he's done. He's not scathing, <laughs> he, just, he just sees that his dad is really sad all the time, and that becomes apparent. I know, I'm, I'm just kind of making it, it's like, oh, why do I look like that? Because that's what your face looks like, Dad. Yeah. No, it's it's a lot more sad than that, I think. You're, mm. you're trivialising that, I think. It's bit. not... It's not like that at all. Mm. It's just a young kid, like, I don't understand why daddy isn't happy and Mm. he just doesn't look happy all the time. Mm. And as a parent, that would kill you, knowing that your child is picking up on the fact that you don't really want to be around. Mm. That's me. That's nanny. That's mummy. That's you. Why do I look so sad? That's what your face looks like. Oh, it is, is it? One thing to talk about is that this film had a, a this book Susan Hill's book had a prior film adaptation back in 1989, uh, a very low budget small one, uh, and that starred uh, Adrian Rawlins as as uh, as Arthur Kipps, who was also in the Harry Potter films alongside Daniel Radcliffe. Guess who as? As James Potter, as Harry Potter's dad. Oh, that's a weird connection. So that's some insane legacy casting, and I'm wondering if that was on purpose, because uh, director James Watkins says that Daniel Radcliffe was the first person they considered for this role. (laughs) Did they think, let's just get James Potter's son. So Arthur, he's going to spend a couple of days away in a coastal town, sorting out the paperwork and affairs of Alice Drablo, who's the owner of Elamarsh House, who recently passed away. He's briefed on all of this by his boss, Mr. Bentley, played by Roger Allen who also explains that Alice did have a son who died many years ago, and their only local contact in the village is Jerome, and he's not being much help. He also warns Arthur that this is his chance to prove himself to the law firm, because the most horrifying stakes in a horror film is the amount of paperwork that needs doing. The reason why this means a lot is because he's at fear of losing his job, because he's just been depressed. Like, his wife died mm-hmm. um, in childbirth with mm-hmm. his son, yeah. and he's just not been the same since. So he's at risk of losing his job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's the whole justification. I'm spending a lot of time away from my son so that I can look after my son by keeping this job. 
Um, and yeah, and, and this is also communicated as he gets the next, he gets the last north and eastbound train to Crithin Gifford as he stares mournfully at a, a wife, uh, his wife's photo in his pocket watch, and he flashes back to his wife, uh, his wife's death because uh, she died through childbirth because he's got some shit to work through over the next ninety minutes. So he makes the journey, meeting local Sam Daly on the train. He's played by uh, Kieran Hines. Uh, he's also from the Harry Potter films. He plays Aberforth Dumbledore, uh, uh, Dumbledore's brother, who only appears like in the last two films. So Sam is a local landowner, and he uses his newfangled automobile to give him a lift. Uh, because this is um, early early 20th century. He says that this is the first motor car in the village, and it scares the locals. <laughs> um, and also, the weather is absolutely terrible. Uh, he invites... He invites Arthur over to dinner the next day. So Arthur finds a slightly frostier reception at the inn, because despite having booked a room and his office ringing ahead, they say that they're fully booked. But the innkeepers, Mr. and Mrs. Fisher, played by Sean Dooley and Mary Stockley, respectively, uh, I got reminded here because Sean Dooley was in It's a Sin, so that brought all that trauma back up. Yes. Uh, he's also in Eden Lake. Oh, okay. Oh, so there's that cool connection. So they put him up in the attic, and the audience will recognise this as being the same room where the three girls stepped out of the window 20 years ago. Now, it's important to notice that the reason that he has such a frosty reception from the husband Mm -hmm. and not from the wife is because he has mentioned he is going to sort out the paperwork at Eel Marsh House. Now, that's a really important plot yeah. point yes, yeah. that you missed out. Well, <laughs> I made a conceited effort with this plot synopsis to try and be a bit briefer than usual. So the next day, Arthur makes his way to Jerome's solicitor's office. Uh, he also passes a group of kids whose dad orders them inside. Now, remember the pub that they go into in American Werewolf in London? I think that that whole pub is this village. This is where they all live. Because well, they they don't like outsiders. They... You should be used to that. Well, <laughs> well because I grew up grew in that up little in area. little village like that. That's why I'm able to identify it so clearly in this film. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a village where they do not take kindly to outsiders. Uh, so Jerome, played by Tim McMullen, does everything he can to convince Arthur to leave. He hands him a large envelope with some of the paperwork and has even paid for a horse and carriage to take him back to the station. Arthur, though, he bribes the cab driver to take him to Eelmarsh House. He's like, eight shillings? Yeah, but I'm the only one who'll take you there, mate. I'm the only one who'll do it. So he, he plays hardball. So Eelmarsh House is this massive derelict mansion at the other end of a huge expanse of marshland. Then uh, this marshland's also got a single cross, like crucifix, in the landscape. Uh, the cab driver also can't come back until 5pm that day because of the tide coming in. This is something that not only keeps Arthur uh, isolated from the rest of the community, it means he can't just leave. Yeah, so it's a causeway. So yeah. um, I don't know if you have them or other places but there's like places like this in the UK and stuff mm. like um, Spurn Point is a little island mm. that gets cut off from the rest of the mainland UK because of the tides yeah. etc etc and I don't know exactly where they filmed the, this particular causeway but that plot point about tides that's, that was actually an issue for the cast and crew of this film because of the tides they could only set up and film on that causeway for four hours a day because the tide would come in so yeah, that that's that's art uh, imitating fiction there, and or vice vice versa. So Arthur heads into the massive empty house. He explores the cobweb-strewn kitchen. 
and a woman in a black dress is hidden just out of his line of sight. We also get some nice jump scares as mud bursts out from one of the taps as well. Oh yeah, I remember first watching that and it made a shit up ants, that first <laughs> jump scare. And there's a lot of scenes like this where, like, especially during our most recent rewatch together, where you're like, oh, she's in the background, she's there. And I just, I, I, it, I didn't notice her until you pointed her out. She's, she's lurking in a lot of the frames. In yeah, the it here. takes a couple of watches for you to realise that she's actually there in the background. Um, but later on in the film, it does do a little bit of a rewind mm-hmm. and shows you her lurking in the background. Yeah, yeah. So In uh, some of the places. But in other times, you've just got to be very um, aware. Oh, yeah, it makes you paranoid. You're always, like, scanning the frame, just trying to find if she's there or not. Uh, so Arthur, he finds a, a large pile of paperwork and begins organising and cataloguing, including finding first birthday cards for uh, a child called Nathaniel from his mum and dad, as well as Nathaniel's death certificates, where it states that he drowned in the marshlands and his body was never found. His work is interrupted by a thumping noise upstairs, which he investigates, and he finds a bird's nest uh, in the bedroom fireplace and a crow flying around as well. He opens the window to let the crow out, but he spots a woman in a black dress in the garden who quickly disappears, and even the crow won't fly out the window. The crow stays in that room because he knows (laughs) that crow doesn't want to go outside. So Arthur heads outside uh, to just investigate. He follows screaming and ghoulish noises in the marshland and is surprised by the cab driver who's come to pick him up. Yeah, so um, because it's near the scene everything there's a lot of sea mist and stuff so Mm. that impairs your vision and you can just hear these noises and like gargling and screaming and a kid shouting and a woman shouting for a child and then all of a sudden it just stops and then all of a sudden there's this there's what's his name Keckwick Back at the village, Arthur reports his findings to the local police station, and when that he, when he says that he saw a woman there, the constabulary quickly excuses himself, and in walks two boys carrying a sick young girl who looks faint with pale skin, and apparently she drank some lye. Well, it's important to note that we passed this young family on the way to Eelnarsh, yes, the... um, and their father kind of like stared at Arthur Kipps and... Yeah ushered his children indoors mm. out the way. So this is the family when I was making that like that bit about American Werewolf in London. This yeah, these were that these were those kids. So this young girl starts vomiting blood and unfortunately dies in Arthur's arms. We then cuts to the child's parents being informed of their daughter's death and we just hear the mother's like screams from outside the house and Oh it's awful. Yeah, it's yeah, it's quite distressing actually. And and Arthur's just like st- stood outside just hearing it all happen. The dad comes outside carrying Carrying the daughter, yeah. Uh, Arthur and Mrs. Fisher uh, try and get over what's just happened by getting drunk at the inn. And Mrs. Fisher urges him to take the next train back home to London so that he can be with his son again. But he can't go as he has an appointment to keep with Mr. Daly and there's still paperwork to be done. So he finds Mr. Daly paying his respects at what I can only describe as like, it's a large grave gravestone but it's it's like a personal mausoleum for the family uh where his late son is buried and where they're going to be buried when they pass away he also he also urges arthur to not mention the subject of children to his wife at dinner 
And we meet Elizabeth Daly, played by Janet McTeer, and also, quote-unquote, the twins, which are two very adorable puppies who eat at the table with them. Like, they are at high, they're in little costumes, they sit in high chairs and eat from their bowls. But Yeah, so she treats them like children, yeah. um, like literal babies. And obviously, um, to some people, that's a little bit strange mm. behaviour. It's coping. She's basically still in the thralls of grief and everything. And she, we later see her rocking them both to sleep in, in a cot. Like, the dogs are in a little baby cot. So, yeah, she's kind of, like, trapped in, in that mode. Uh, Elizabeth cannot wait to talk about children at the dinner table, though, and claims that their late son wants to draw a picture for Arthur, so she takes a dinner knife and starts carving something into the table before being medicated by her husband and helpers. And later that evening, Arthur and Sam discuss the supernatural over whiskey next to a roaring fire. You don't believe in this spiritualism stuff, do you? I didn't. Since my wife passed away, I don't know. Oh, forgive me, I, I didn't. Sometimes I feel she's still with me. Sometimes I just feel she's there in the room, trying to reach me. Well, you must be careful, Arthur. These charlatans. With all that talk about seances and contacting the dead, they prey on those most in need. They do more harm than good. Arthur is offered a guest room at the dailies for the rest of his stay, but before he goes to bed, he checks the dinner table to look at what Elizabeth carved, and it's someone hanging from a noose. Uh, So that's quite intimidating. So the next day, Sam drives Arthur back to Jerome's office, but it appears that no one's in. So Arthur explores downstairs, finding a large locked wooden door with a peephole, and a young girl on the other side who yells at him and begs him to leave, blaming him for the young girl's death yesterday. And she's not the only one who blames him, as their driving route to Eel Marsh House is blocked by angry villagers who think Arthur's presence is what caused this misery to unfold. The police are also there as well. You should have left. You should have gone when we told you to. His little girl is dead. You saw her. You saw that woman at the house. Oh, for God's sake, take him home. This isn't helping him. All your superstitious rubbish. You think this is superstitious rubbish that took your boy? Sam just drives on through and drops uh, Arthur off at the house, promising to come back the next day as Arthur insists on working through the night. Sam also gives Arthur his dog for company. Uh, the dog's not named in the film, but... Named... No, but in the book, she's called Spider. Ah, oh, a lovely spider. So Arthur is searching around the house for more paperwork and documents and stumbles across a door where his keys won't fit. And he's also creeped out by the entrance of, uh, of this like dark hallway. Like, at the top of the stairs, you've got this really long stretch of hallway from the left to the right. And on the left side is like a pair of curtains and it's just pure black by, on the other side, behind those curtains, those entrance curtains. And yeah, it's, it's very creepy. As he finds Nathaniel's old bedroom, he's startled by someone slamming their hand on the glass window in a nearby bathroom door. So that's a cool jump scare. But when he investigates, no one's in there. In the downstairs lounge, he finds a zoetrope, which for anyone under the age of uh, 90 uh, is, is uh, basically a very primitive 
form of animation where you'd get think of a lampshade and you've drawn a load of things on the inside you spin it you get you look through peepholes and it looks like a like a little cartoons in there so he looks inside the zoetrope only to see what looks like a female corpse staring back at him from the other side he does more paperwork finding threatening letters to nathaniel's parents written in red and spider the dog is also barking at something outside because dogs are always the first ones to know the two go out and search in the garden where he's been stalked by the woman in black again and he finds Nathaniel's gravestone where it appears that someone has tried to scratch out the bit at the bottom of the gravestone where it says loving son of Alice and Charles Drablo. He also finds the gravestone of Jeanette Humphrey, dear sister of Alice Drablo. So we're, start, we're starting to learn a little bit about the family history and the dynamic here. Arthur returns to the house but sees the woman in black standing in one of the upstairs windows. And he heads upstairs to that same window but he doesn't find anyone. The audience, however, get treated to the woman in black standing right behind him. And yeah, that's one of my favourite shots. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Apparently Arthur has the power to find and detect the presence of paperwork because, completely unprovoked, he can start searching inside a wooden chair. And he finds more letters and envelopes, including more birthday cards to Nathaniel for his first birthday. But these ones are just signed from Mummy, not, not from Mum and Dad. This has just got one singular person who's authored these cards goes downstairs to read more letters from Jeanette. Dear Alice, you leave me no option but to give up my son. If you have your doctors deem me mentally unfit to raise my child, what can I do? You and Charles can take him from me, but he is mine. Mine. He can never be yours. Jeanette. So here's what we learn. Jeanette had a son, but she was declared mentally unfit to look after him. So her sister Alice adopted him and wouldn't let her visit, which rightly pissed Jeanette off, who appears to have been locked in one of the bedrooms of the mansion as well, and is also standing in the window in the background of a family photo, which is super creepy. So Jeanette also blamed Alice for Nathaniel's death in the marshes and never forgave her, telling her to rot in hell. Arthur also finds Jeanette's death certificate. It says that she hung herself in the nursery of Ela Marsh House. Except, no, she's not actually uh, dead. She's currently walking towards Arthur from across the house while he's facing away from her. And he's falling asleep in the armchair. And we get this really long, creepy scene of the woman in black walking towards Arthur. And she's reflected in a nearby mirror in the corner of the frame. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, And it really, it really is creepy. Liz White, who plays... um. Jeanette Humphrey mm. is mm. amazing at this. Um, and I just remember everybody talking about who is the woman mm-hmm. that plays the woman in black. And it's Liz White. Mm. She's been in lots of things it's, as well. It is Liz White, except for this scene, she's played by someone different. This one scene only, she's played by production assistant Rosie Coker, who was Daniel Radcliffe's girlfriend at the time. Uh. For this one scene, uh, she met, um, the two met as she was working as a runner on the, f- on the last three Harry Potter films. And she was working as a production assistant on this film. So it's for this one scene where she's not played by Liz White. It's also important to know, um, Jeanette Humphrey is dead. Yeah. And it is a guy. Yeah, yeah, it is a guy. So I'm just trying to be a bit funny. <laughs> <laughs> so the woman in black is walking right towards him. However... Arthur is saved by the dog barking, which wakes him up, and everything's okay now. She's just about to touch his shoulder, mm-hmm. and the dog starts barking, yeah. waking him up. Good, good old spider. 
So the only thing that's now out of place after that supernatural encounter is that this, the family photo now has Alice and Charles's face all scratched out. And there's also a consistent banging and knocking noise coming from the upstairs nursery. No, don't go up there, don't go up there. But he does. He goes upstairs, and the door that was once locked now lets him in. And he finds the source of the knocking, which is a bit scary, but I can't help but find it a little bit funny. It's a very, very aggressive rocking chair. Just rocking back and forth with nobody in it. Except the audience does get a very brief glimpse uh, when it... um, uh, when it's out of Arthur's perspective, his, his viewpoint, we do see that there is some sort of spirit in that chair. It's a really freaky shot, but it's something I, that I really enjoy about this film. How it does give the audience that um, that, for, that foresight, that sense of perspective that Arthur does not have. He sees an empty rocking chair, but the audience sees, presumably Jeanette at this point, is just very angrily in that rocking chair. As he approaches, the chair stops rocking. And he explores the nursery, finding a lot of very freaky-looking music toys. And these dolls, these music boxes, are creepy as hell. But they, despite being the most horrifying thing that I've ever seen, they were not scary props made for the production. No, these were real antique music boxes owned by a private collector who loaned them out for this film. So that private collector is presumably experiencing hauntings every single day of his life, because there's no way those music boxes are just normal. There's also a wardrobe with a lot of costumes inside and some peeling wallpaper on the far wall. So he peels away the rest of the wallpaper. There's a bit of like red writing underneath. Uh, I almost expected it to be a message from the Doctor warning him about the Weeping Angels. But no, it is a, it is a message written in blood saying you could have saved him. Which I interpreted as the final message from Jeanette before she hung herself in that room. Arthur, clearly a glutton for punishment, heads back to Nathaniel's room with a hatchet in hand. He's armed now. He looks out the window and sees what appears to be Nathaniel rising from the makeshift grave in the marshes outside uh, and walking towards the house and a handprint appearing on the window. Um, And when he goes to touch the handprint, a screaming woman takes over his reflection. Oh, it's terrifying. It's definitely, it's the woman in black screaming. Yeah. Um, But this is a very good jump scare. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, because she is basically there watching her son come out of the grave and, yeah, d- yeah, it's very creepy. The dog starts barking at the front door as whatever has risen from the marshes tries to get open, tries to get through the locked door. Arthur does open it, and there's nothing there. He goes outside in the rain, however, and sees the ghosts of several dead children outside. We recognise this being um, the Daly's son, because he's wearing a similar outfit to what he's seen in like a family portrait and a family photo. We see the three girls from the opening who jumped out the window, and the girl with blood on her face when she vomited up the lie. Uh, Freaked out, understandably, Arthur heads back inside, only to spot muddy, tiny footprints on the floor making their way upstairs to the nursery, where one of the creepy music boxes is playing. And a small child, cast in shadows, is just scurrying around the room. He then sees Jeanette hang herself, causing him to drop the candle that he was holding. He relights it with a match, and there's Nathaniel covered in mud just screaming at him. Um, this hanging scene is quite dramatic, though. It's not. It doesn't happen slowly. It's a really quick thing. You walk in, and then all of a sudden, this thing drops, yeah. and it's really scary. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And this is apparently Arthur's limit. So he he runs out of the house. Uh, though he does see the woman in black at the other end of the upstairs corridor. Uh, but first, he locks himself in Nathaniel's old room to escape her. And the bed starts leaking mud, creating a small puddle on the top, 
which Nathaniel starts climbing out of. So Arthur gets the hell out of there, opens the front door, and there's Sam, who's come to collect him and drive him back to the village. And he doesn't believe any of Arthur's superstitious Now that's stories. not quite true. No? He's not giving in to the stories, not that he doesn't believe them. Mm-hmm. He's trying to keep things, he's like, don't be silly, like, come on, it's not. But he knows something bad has happened to him by looking at his face. Yeah. He knows about all the rumours. He just doesn't he want to believe He knows it's true, he's just not giving in to it. Mm. To prepare him, to keep himself sane. Yeah. So they return to the village, it's morning now, and they drive past Jerome's house, which is ablaze. Jerome and his wife are screaming that their daughter Lucy is still inside, so Arthur goes into the burning building to get her. He breaks down the locked wooden basement door and sees Lucy standing still on the other side of the room, and the woman in black is in there with her. Lucy picks up a gas lantern and drops it at her feet, setting herself alight. So Arthur manages to escape the house. Uh, Lucy, of course, has perished in the inferno, and they return to Sam's house, understandably a bit traumatised. The Jeromes had already lost a son when they had Lucy, and they locked Lucy up to protect her, so that's why she was in that basement. So Arthur has to think about what he can do to try and stop the deaths of the children, especially since his own son will be coming to see him later that night. He finds Elizabeth Daly at her son's grave, who explains her son drowned at the beach, and knows that Arthur has seen the woman in black. And she elaborates, she gets possessed by the spirit of her son, who explains what's been going on. Whenever she's been seen, on the causeway, on the marsh, in the grounds of the house, however briefly and whoever by, there has always been one sure and certain result. Yes. In some violence, or dreadful circumstance a child has died so many so many children so many children the fisher's daughters and jerome's eldest keckwick's son my nicholas how mrs daly mrs daly She makes us, they took her boy away, so now she takes us. We also see, this is what you were mentioning earlier, we see flashbacks to prior uh, deaths of the children over the course of the film, but Jeanette, the woman in black, is in the background of these shots now. Yes. So her, her influence, she's kind of manipulating these children to commit suicide. So a possessed Elizabeth also takes a stone from the floor and starts drawing something in the walls of the mausoleum. And it's a one-for-one copy, basically, of one of Arthur's sons, uh, of Arthur's son Joseph's drawings of him, uh, because he's got a little hand-drawn cartoon calendar, of him coming to see him tonight on the train. He says, Friday, you're going to get the train, come see us, and that drawing has been drawn on the mausoleum, so... Joseph is is the next target. There isn't time for Arthur to send a telegram to London in time to warn his nanny and son not to get on the train, so he concocts a plan to reunite Jeanette with her son. So using Sam's motor car, the two head back to the marshes and plan to tie a rope to the Drablo's sunken cart. It, it sank to the bottom of the marshes, and they plan to try and pull it up. And Arthur, he waits through the mud, and it's this really long scene where, where he really struggles to, like, I paddle through the really thick marshlands and Daniel Radcliffe is just soaked from top top to bottom. He he swims in the mud 
Um, I think it's a really great scene. It, it emphasizes the struggle that they're going through to try and do this task. He manages to find the cart, and Sam can partially pull it out. He pulls it out enough for Arthur to find Nathaniel's body and carry it to land. At Eelmarsh House, Arthur cleans himself up and leaves Nathaniel's body in the nursery bed for Jeanette to find. To lure her into the room, Arthur winds up every music box in the nursery. However, it seems Jeanette has other plans and wants to mess around with Sam Daly for a bit by haunting him with his own deceased son. Jeanette is eventually lured to the nursery, and after scaring Arthur by shrieking at him from across the room, appears to find Nathaniel's body and disappears, which also frees Sam from his personal honey trap as well. With mother and son reunited, they open up Jeanette's grave in the garden and bury them both together. Optimistic, they drive away, but over footage of the old family photographs at the house, we can hear Jeanette chanting, Never forgive, never forgive. So there's apparently no pleasing this woman. At the village train station, Arthur and Sam arrive just in time to greet Joseph and the nanny. And Arthur is joyous to see them, gives his son a big hug and explains that they're heading straight back home and they're not staying the weekend. So as nanny goes to buy more tickets and Arthur and Sam have a heartfelt farewell, Joseph's attention is taken by something on the other side of the train tracks. He lets go of his dad's hand and slowly starts walking on the train tracks towards an oncoming train. Arthur sees the woman in black on the opposing platform and leaps onto the tracks to save his son, only for them both to get hit by the oncoming train. Sam sees a screaming woman in black along with the dead children through the train cart windows as we join Arthur and Joseph alone at the train station, where they're greeted by a woman wearing white. Arthur's late wife and Joseph's mother, and she's been very horribly green-screened, they walk hand-in-hand into the afterlife as Janet, the woman in black, looks on before looking into the camera. And then we cut to black. I mean, that is quite a nice thing she did. He was desperately miserable. But I mean, it is kind of horrible too. (laughs) So they are all reunited. They are. But that um, that reuniting was a very last-minute reshoot edition. That that actually could be why... um, Arthur's wife is so badly green screened in that shot because they had to reshoot this at the last second because test audiences found the original ending where Arthur and Joseph just got hit by the train and that's the end of the film. They found that a bit too depressing. So they reunited them at the end of the film. Um, And that was The Woman in Black. So yes, what did you think of the Woman in Black? I I still love it. I yeah. still think I think it's a great horror film. Mm. Um, I think even if you don't get scared easily, there are a few jump scares that will make you jump. Or yeah, yeah. like, and the subject is so terrifying that you must be like so far gone not to find any of it depressing or scary <laughs> yeah yeah i remember when i first saw this film I was a bit i was a bit lukewarm towards it i think i might have mellowed somewhat but yeah i think it's pretty good it it doesn't um 
I scare me too much when watching it. But I, whenever I do watch it, I do find myself like turning all of the lights on in the house and make and uh, being a bit scared when walking. But here's the bit that I'm most excited about. Yeah, because you've read the book. I have. Your little bookworm. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm interested to know how it compares, how, how the two stack up. So, I was really excited to read the book because the stage play I've heard is absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I obviously found the film really, really scary. So, yeah. I was really excited to read the book. Um, but I was disappointed okay. with the book, really. It's only a short book. And... Obviously, the premise of the story is there, but Jane Goldman, who adapted the story for film, I mm. think did an amazing job because, quite honestly, when I was reading the book, I literally felt I was reading about Arthur Kipps being stood in the cold, fresh air for about 95% <laughs> of the film. Yeah, yeah. And it's only sort of like the last chapter where things get kind of really interesting in the book unfortunately yeah um it's a great premise i just wish there would have been a it would have been a bit scarier within the book i was expecting to be freaked out mm. and to be honest i was just a bit disappointed with it mm. it's still a good book to read and like obviously you can see the premise of a really good ghost story there and like the ending to that film is uh, sorry the ending to the book is quite horrific yeah i just felt like i was reading about the cold crisp air <laughs> yeah yeah for far too long yeah because for like how do you normally respond to like horror stories in general do you do you just prefer like the visual medium or are you able to like be scared reading like, like reading horror prose well, if it's effective enough, you can be scared, can't yeah. you, by a book? Because you're using your own imagination. Mm-hmm. But I, in this instance, I think the movie is better than the book. Because I know the the film... Because I've not read the book myself, but I know there's a couple of differences. Like, um, Arthur is not a widower in the book. He does have a wife. No, he does have a wife. Yeah. And like, are there any other big differences that uh, that you can think of? Or is that the big one? That's the biggest one. Okay, also, I'm sorry I've taken that away from you. <laughs> um, he is a widower as well. Ooh. So the beginning of the book mm-hmm. starts with him as an old man. Okay. And he has, uh, he's remarried and he has four or five stepchildren okay. who are all a bit older and he's got some grandchildren and it's Christmas Day and they're sharing ghost stories on Christmas Eve. So The Woman in Black is a Christmas film, you're saying? We could watch this along with Die Hard and Muppets Christmas Carol. No, oh, okay. no, because it's not like that in the book. Oh. Uh, in the film, it's just like it in the book. And so, you know, something has happened, mm. and he is pushed to tell his ghost story, and he freaks out, and he says, "No, I've never spoken of it before." He calms down, he comes back in, everybody's going to bed, and he decides to sit there and write his story, okay. and that's how we go back into the story of what happened. Mm. So, um, sorry, spoilers, Ooh. but we don't find out what actually happened until the last chapter. Mm. So, his wife is called Stella in the film and in the book. Um. Sorry, his first wife in the book. Um, she and his son, who is a baby still at the time, yeah, are killed by the woman in black in front of him. Okay. In a 
it's quite horrific actually um she in a um i was gonna say in an accident but it's not an accident Mm. um because obviously she makes it happen so she they're on a pony and car ride because he wanted the affair and he spots the woman in black and she decides to step out in front of the pony. Okay. Which freaks the horse out. It goes crazy and it crashes into a large tree nearby. Mm-hmm. And the baby, Joseph, goes flying Ooh. and hits another tree and dies. Okay. And his wife dies from the impact. The pony dies and there's just this horrific, what looks like accident, but we know it isn't. And he's seen... Jeanette there, mm. or Janet. Mm. Um, for those who are hearing noises, it's not some supernatural occurrence. It's our cats just <laughs> going go, a bit crazy, going a bit apeshit. Yeah, <laughs> but yes, don't worry, we are safe. We have not seen any supernatural no. occurrences this day. No, no. Um, so that is basically what happens in the last chapter. Yeah. Um, so it peaks at the end in terms yeah. of frights and stuff. Yeah. yeah? Okay. Um. And obviously he witnesses it all and it, like, describes the dead baby. Like, mm. yeah. Like, mm. with his neck broken and stuff, which is pretty awful. Mm. But that's pretty much the only scary bit in it. Yeah. The story of Nathaniel is in it, but there isn't really the haunting the same as within the film. Yeah. So he hears the noises and the rocking chair and stuff like that in the house. Mm. Nobody wants to talk about what's ha- what happens in like like the villages and stuff but it's not as hostile as it is in the film yeah but i think there are still kids that die and stuff like that but that's not explained in the book it's not explained the way it is in the film yeah you just hear like the children died and stuff whenever this woman is seen yeah um and people won't help him out Mm. yeah i think because you've got the film you, you need that whole like cause and effect aspect in it and it, it seems like it maybe goes a bit more, maybe it's the wrong term, a bit more conventional and mainstream for the film, like uh, as opposed to like just having, let's say, eighty minutes of atmosphere and Daniel Radcliffe in the cold mist, and then the last ten minutes just gets super brutal. Like it, it's more mm. consistent scares over the course of the ninety-minute film. Yeah, and then in the book, he's left alive, and mm. like his wife and baby are dead. Mm. And one, I mean, I suppose that is a true revenge story yeah um because he has to live without his wife and baby mm. but whereas you like when we got to the end of the plot you said that that was kind of like a good thing for arthur because he was kind of stewing in his own grief and stuff and yeah and now could, they're all reunited yeah it could have been like a mercy killing from yeah the woman in black. potentially yeah so it's a very different tonally if that's if that is the author intent yeah yeah because well, what what he described with the the fate of Arthur's family and stuff like that is particularly gruesome. Nothing like that quite happens in the film. It's not quite as uh, it's not a very gory film. It's not particularly violent by horror standards. So the the version of this film that me and you saw for for Netflix, we watched it on Netflix. It was rated fifteen, so it wasn't the original theatrical cut. This is the uncut version. The original one was 12A, which is like a PG-13 equivalent, and it was able to be released after six seconds of the film were cut, and some sound effects were just lowered in volume. That's how it got from 15 to 12A. <laughs> so those six seconds include you know, more violent stuff with the girl setting herself on fire in the basement, and also Janet, Jeanette, whatever, hanging, hanging herself from the nursery. 
Like that that's those are the those are the things that got cut. Everything else, fine, twelve A. The 15-rated version was also the theatrical re-release that was uh, done in 2014 to promote the upcoming sequel. You can read this on the BBFC website. They break down what they cut. So, however, the initial 12A rating was still seen as a bit, you know, a bit too slight for many people, with the BBFC receiving 134 complaints from people who felt it deserved a higher rating. And that made it the most complained about film of of 2012 by quite a substantial margin, by nearly a factor of three. Because second place was Men in Black 3, (laughs) with 50 complaints for strong language and sexual innuendo. And the third most complained about film was The Hunger Games, the original one, which got, and I quote, a smaller number of complaints. We don't have an actual number there. So, yeah, you go from 134 complaints for The Woman in Black, then all the way down at second place is 50 for Men in Black 3, and then a couple from the Hunger Games. I was shocked that it was a 12 mm. and how scary it was. Yeah. Um, it, it made, like, news stories and headlines yeah, and stuff yeah, in 2012. Yeah, it did. It, it made a lot of... Mm. Uh, yeah, and everybody was talking about, who's the woman in black mm. and stuff like that. And it's this lovely actress called Liz White and yeah. she's in a lot of things as well. And she, she, she's very good. Yeah, but the backlash at the time was so big that even though it's sequel a couple of years later, uh, Angel of Death, which didn't have the involvement of like almost any of the original creative team, they just did a sequel to this, um, the sequel should have qualified for a 12A certificate under the BBFC, but because they just wanted to prevent another controversy, they were like, five, 15. <laughs> that was a PR nightmare in 2012. So much paperwork. Just plop 15 on the poster and we're fine. So that's what happened. So that sequel came out a few years later. Uh, it, it was st- it still made money but it wasn't as well received yeah I've it was, not seen it yeah I've, I've heard it's not very good it's, it's, set, in, it's imagine, set in World War 2 I think I can't imagine another woman in black story do you know what I mean like, yeah it, it felt like it all tied it all together nicely yeah it was it was very much a case of like just capitalising on a successful film because this was Hammer Horror making a big comeback it was the highest grossing like British horror film in several decades it made several times its budget it did quite well in America as well because you know Daniel Radcliffe was still a big star because of Harry Potter at the time this is it did a, it did a good job at um, capitalising on that name recognition So, folks, thank you very much for listening to us talk about The Woman in Black, the 2012 version. Uh, Next week, we are going to finally complete the wheel, uh, the the, the wheel that we've been spinning over the past several months to whittle down uh, our film choices. Uh, So next week, Yaz, what are we going to be talking about? The last film on the wheel. We don't even need to spin it. We are going to talk about a film that even grossed you out. Uh, (laughs) Nope. And the film is... Raw. Yes. So we're going. We're going uh, back. Uh, back to Europe. We're staying in Europe. We're going to be nipping across the pond, though, to France for this French language horror drama thriller film, Raw. So you know, get, get, get your napkins out, get your knife and fork out, turn the oven on. We're talking about can cameables. It's going to be fun. <laughs> no. Yaz is just staring at me like I've just dribbled all over my beard. Anyway, so yeah, next week we're going to be talking about Raw. But in the meanwhile, as our cats just continue to flip out across the house, you can follow us on social media. Maybe send us, uh, if you've done any creepy snowmen in the garden, because it's it's snowing across parts of the country right now. Maybe dress a snowman up in like black robes and freak out your neighbours. So where can you send those photos to on our social media? <laughs> yes, what can you do? On Twitter, at Monster Man Pod. 
on Instagram at Monster Monday Pod and Facebook is the same as Instagram. Also, the UK is still in lockdown, mm. so there is not much to do. So if you do fancy dressing up as the woman in black, <laughs> out standing name. outside people's houses, please take photos. Exactly. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Let me know what you think. Yes, to let... the book yes. and if you was as disappointed as me maybe you should have read the book first well because you saw the film when it came out I did then I saw you... it in the cinema then you read the book and because you read the book you wanted to do this episode yes so because I wanted to talk about how disappointed I was <laughs> yeah this whole episode is just an excuse <laughs> for Yas to vent a little bit and I really wanted to re-watch the film again because I remember how scared I was the first time I watched it and just it's just such a beautiful film. And I don't mean like the subject matter is beautiful. I just mean the production design yeah. on this film and the costumes. Just it is so beautiful mm. and aesthetically pleasing to me. Yeah. I just I just think it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean a weekend in that house would seem like a nightmare for many people, but I think you'd 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 love living in that uh, Eel Marsh house for the weekend. Oh, I don't know. Do I, I don't like ghosts. You they scare me. Nah, you, no, there's no ghost there, but you'd do, you'd do all the decorations. You'd... Oh, I quite liked it. I liked that purple, the purple of the walls. There we go. Yeah, it was very nice. There we go. I, I can't do without my modern comforts, though. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say <laughs> I am very happy living in the 21st century <laughs> with my modern comforts. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, but anyway, so thank you so much for listening to this episode. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.